Good afternoon and welcome to all of our UK Column listeners. Today is Saturday the 9th of December. It's uh, quarter past four in the afternoon. And uh, my goodness, we've just had an incredible clap of thunder, huge downpouring, lots of torrential rain. Luckily it's eased off, but I know that the local river is a raging torrent. The farmers' fields are all flooded and no doubt this uh, will signal a drought for 2024. Maybe that's a bit cynical. We will see. Now, I'm delighted to have Debbie Evans with me this afternoon. I've worked together with Debbie for a very long time in UK Column, and she's done some really fantastic work. But I decided that over the Christmas period, I wanted to put out some interviews with women, real women, adult females, that have stood up to be counted and uh, they're not pulling any punches. They're not happy with what's going on. And so Debbie is one of the ladies who's agreed to be interviewed by me. And I'm calling these women gutsy women. So that's your introduction, Debbie. Welcome. Oh, thank you very much indeed for that, Brian. Uh, I think uh, my children actually call me Gobby Granny because um I don't think sometimes they, they wince because I do go down some rabbit holes that other people might not want to. But it's just ironic, isn't it, that as we're sitting here and the rain is absolutely pouring down, it was actually floods that um, introduced us in a way. Um, and one of the campaigns that I've been on for the last 20 years is is one of water and sewage. And I'm sure we'll come on to that. But um that's one of my feisty, uh, my feisty personality traits, if you like. I'm I'm a bit like a, a terrier, and once I'm on a mission, I tend not to let go. Okay, well, maybe we can change events here because I I was thinking about the title. I went for gutsy women, but do you think it should be feisty women? I knew it couldn't be women with balls because that would take us into <laughs> no. very difficult transgender transgender territory so do you think feisty is better than gutsy um i don't know i don't know how other people perceive the word feisty i see myself um or at least i hope and other people see me as someone that's strong independent um fearless when it comes to speaking out and honest now if that makes me feisty then i'm very happy to be feisty um i think there are many women that are standing up and speaking out and i'm absolutely delighted with the amount of women actually and it seems to be women of a certain age and i'll put myself in that bracket too i'd like to see more youngsters coming out and and becoming feisty and i hope we can encourage some to speak out and to challenge what they're seeing and what they're hearing because I'm hoping that we can my generation um, especially can lead the way for youngsters because it's their futures at the end of the day I mean you know let's be honest about this Brian neither of us are spring chickens and we've had the luxury of a pretty remarkable life where we haven't been subjected to conflicts bombs um, and, and totalitarian regimes like so many other countries have, have been at the hands of. We've been lucky in the West and we've had a 
maybe what some might call a privileged life. And now to see all of that being destroyed right in front of our eyes. And I look at my grandchildren and I think, what kind of world are they going to be growing up in? And as a woman, and I know that many women will identify with this, I think, is when you become a mum, um, only a mum can know this, I think. You get this protective, almost lioness instinct with your children and you'll do anything for your children. You really will, you'll put your life on the line for your children. So I think, you know, now especially women can see what is happening around them. They can see the futures for their children collapsing in front of them. And I think women are leading the way. I, I really do. That's not to say that you gentlemen aren't doing your bit because you are. And there are many amazing guys out there that are speaking up. But I do think on on many topics, women women are leading the way. Well, I'd, I'd certainly agree with you on that. And uh, part of my reason for for doing this um, with women, these interviews with women who are really standing up to do things and speak out, was that uh, the original foundation of the UK column occurred because of two grandmums who decided that they weren't going to take what was happening. In those days, the key issue was the takeover of UK by the European Union. So there was a lot of focus on things to do with the European Union, but we also were looking very closely at constitutional issues. And I will say, as people of a certain age, we also realised that something wasn't wrong in the, sorry, that something wasn't right in the country. So two grandmums, but uh, that uh, was Carol and Kate. But there was another elderly lady who was very kind to us, very generous to us, called Sheila. And they called themselves the Three Musketeers, which always made me smile. And uh, I can certainly say the three of them were pretty feisty women. And they decided they were not going to sit back and watch what was happening to their country. They were going to do something about it. That was when we initially were looking at forming a, a newspaper or some sort of media outlet. Um, but what came to our mind was really that there was a battle going on. There was a battle for Britain. And we certainly couldn't call it the battle for Britain because that had happened and a lot of very good people had stood up to be counted and fought and died for their country. So we called it the new battle for Britain group. And this uh, seemed to have some traction with a lot of people. So just to cut this bit of the story short, it was mature women who were not going to have it. They saw that some of the men were reluctant to stand up, so they stepped forward. And look where that's got us with the UK column. So, Debbie, for, for the audience, um, let's tell the audience how we got to know each other. Ah. <clears throat> let's but you know what just before 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 we talk about floods and uh southwest water i do hope southwest water are, are listening to this um on the flip side i would say too that i think women um in particular sometimes there are only jobs that women can do and by that i mean that whereas we've got lots of amazing women standing up and challenging the narrative 
and putting their heads above the parapet. We also have a number of women in very high places that should know better. Um, and I'm going to refer to Dame Jenny Harris, Dame June Rain, Dame Kate Bingham, Dame Sally Davis, Dr. Alison Kaye, for example. And as a woman myself and as a mum and a grandmum, I know that all of those women have children and most of them have grandchildren. And I know what I was taught when I was pregnant, when I was a young mum, and how these people in the positions that they're in can ignore all the red flags that they have been shown by all of us is just simply beyond me. So yes, we have some amazing women that are standing up and it's only women like that, I think, that can challenge those women in high places, not just on what they've done, but on the moral and the ethical um, debate on how could you, as a mother, as a grandmother, witnessing, knowing about thalidomide, knowing about teratogenic medicines, knowing about the history, how could you allow this to happen? So mum to mum, Dame June Rain, grandmum to grandmum, Dame June Rain, I would say to her, why? How could you possibly not know that what you were doing was dangerous? Because yeah. I know. So I think, you know, there are some things that women can only challenge other women on. Because well, Debbie, it, we, we're going to... We're going to definitely come back onto this because this is part of the key area that you've you've spent a lot of time researching and speaking about and warning about. But yeah, I'm going to push you. That. Let's let let's talk you a little bit. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and well, where did you go to school, for instance? What sort of school did you go to? I was very fortunate, and I, I guess I'm quite unusual for a, a, a late 1950s baby. I've never met my dad, uh, so I didn't know my dad. So my mum was an unmarried mother in the late 50s, which was very unusual. And I was very fortunate that she kept me and that my grandparents and her looked after me. But I was always a bit different from the family that I grew up with uh, because they were very conservative, uh, church-going Christians. I went to church twice a week, but... I guess it comes back to your word again, in a way, Brian Feisty. I was always challenging the narrative. I was um, always questioning things. And I was maybe always doing things that my mother would take a bit of a gasp at. So I was very fortunate and I went to a private school. I went to a school called Palmer's Green High School, which is a very small private school in North London. And it was, uh, I was a good girl. You know, I, I, I didn't have great concentration. But I, I obeyed the rules. And then one day in my final year at Palmer's Green High School, we all had to uh, line up in the playground. And I was the tallest in the class. We weren't allowed to speak in line. And I had never been, I'd never had a punishment at school ever. Not an order mark or a conduct mark or anything that would warrant a conversation with my parents or my mum. And um, on this occasion, my friend in front of me talked and I bent down to listen to her, but I got blamed for it. 
because they thought it was me that was speaking in in the line and I got punished for it. And there were ongoing consequences of that punishment and the injustice of that one incident that my mother and I often still recount it in that my whole sense of injustice was fired up from that one event. And ever since then, I have been um, pretty anti-authority, I have to say, and I have challenged things. I've always wanted to challenge things if I don't understand them or if I think that an injustice has taken place. So I left school um, and I went to nurse training school and I was very fortunate. I mean, back in that day, it was an honor and a privilege to be accepted into nurse training school. You know, the, the NHS weren't begging for nurses. There were queues of, of people wanting to enter nurse training school. And I was accepted at the Royal Free. Oh, I, I did do a, a year gap actually between school and um, nursing. And I worked in Harrods uh, for a year, which was quite eye-opening. I did it, I loved it. I did enjoy it uh, when it was the House of Fraser. Um, and then I went to the Royal Free and I did my SRN training there, qualified three years later, uh, stayed in nursing for some years and made the grade that became a ward sister. And then like everything, you know, your life changes and you get married and you have children and your whole life completely alters. But I went, kept going back to nursing um, as and when I could. But in the end, I ended up um, doing many things, volunteering for a lot of things during my life. Um, I volunteered, well, I, I actually worked for a charity for quite a while. I worked for ActionAid. I ran my own charity for autism for five years, which was pro bono, a one woman charity. Um, I sent parcels to the Gulf during the Gulf War. And I was the English representative, if you like, sort of organizing all the truckloads of parcels that were going to soldiers in the Gulf. And um, as a result, I was invited to Downing Street for lunch with the then prime minister, John Major. Um, which was an experience to say the least, just walking into Downing Street, walking up the stairs. And I was so surprised at the size of the rooms upstairs. They were like banquet halls, absolutely huge. So um, I've done lots of volunteering and I've done lots of work helping people that have had bad things happen to them or underdogs that haven't been able to fight their own battles without a bit of help. And I mean, eventually I ended up as a single parent to five children, um, which was a challenge in itself. That kept me pretty busy. Um, and all my kids are on the autism spectrum, which uh, presents yet more challenges, or at least did. Uh, and the only way when you're confronted with something like that um, is to learn about everything as much as you possibly can. And that's really when my learning journey started with research. Um, and since then I've been a complete researchaholic and spend 18 hours of 24 hours researching. So autism was my first research specialist subject. Debbie, if I can just come in here and, and say, I know that the autism subject was one that you really had to fight very hard for for your children because there were there was there were incidents that you had to 
really work very hard as a parent to keep your family together. Are, are you able to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, the, the first time, I mean, it, it's been very interesting actually listening to all of your work and listening to the interviews that have been coming up on UK Column from people that have gone through the whole child protection uh, journey, um, family courts, CAFCAS, because this has been going on for decades. I first came into contact with um, child protection because of autism, because of autism spectrum conditions back in 1996. Um, and one of my kids was particularly hyperactive um, and he was deemed disruptive at school. And they kept looking at me as if it was my fault, as though I was doing something to him at home that was having an effect on his school life. And I was trying very hard to get him support because he was nonverbal till he was seven. So he didn't speak and people couldn't really understand what he was saying. But the thing with autism, Brian, and I think this is where people get confused, is that autism is neither rain man nor little boy banging head on wall. That's not the picture of autism. Autism, autism spectrum conditions are completely unique to every single person. And autism on its own is a standalone neurodevelopmental condition. It is not a learning disability and it is not a mental health condition. Yes, of course, it can be associated with a learning disability and often is, and it can be associated with mental health conditions, coexisting mental health conditions. But as a standalone condition, autism is a neurodevelopmental condition and thus it should have its experts, neurodevelopmental experts on hand to help people on the autism spectrum. But that's something that we don't have in existence. So the other thing to be aware of too is that with autism spectrum conditions, there is no intellectual impairment unless it's associated, you have an associated learning disability with it. So for the majority of children that are diagnosed or suspected of being on the autism spectrum, if they have an IQ of above 70, they will be sent to a mainstream school. If they have an IQ of below 70, they will be sent to a special school. So the majority of these children do not have um, impairments in their IQ. They have perhaps low emotional quotients, but their, their intellect is not affected. So most of them get, they get um, directed into mainstream schools where there is no support, none whatsoever. And my son was struggling he was really struggling. He couldn't process the information that he was getting. So he was becoming disruptive in school and he was getting himself into trouble. And I fought and fought and fought to get him support and help. The more I fought, the more I raised the, not the alarm, but if you like, I, I just raised the questions, the more I became demonized. And as a single parent, I found myself a target and, and, and it would seem from, I've, I've had many years looking at child protection since and looking at the system, and it would seem that many single mums get targeted and I was one of them. And with without giving us too many personal details, but 
how long did it take you to to go through that battle until you'd got the state system away from your children? Oh, it was absolutely extraordinary. Um, I mean, autism, in my opinion, is a genetic condition. Um, and so my son was born on the autism spectrum. He wasn't diagnosed on the autism spectrum until he was 11 years old. And for the whole time, really from when he was went to um, kindergarten in infant school, when he went to year one and nursery, that was when the problems started arising because we we had no problem with him, although he was a handful, I will admit. And he will admit that now, you know, he's uh, he's a very successful young man now and he's doing very, very well. But he'll admit that he was challenging as a youngster. But I fought and fought. And the more you fight, the more you ask for help, the more you get demonized and more they decide, well, we don't know what it is that's causing this issue. So it must be you. So then they start to attack you. And it doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> you can be polite. You can be reasonable. You can be measured. It doesn't matter. They will still put the blame on you. And you end up with social services um, on your doorstep. It's 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 almost well, I call them the domestic police. I've never had a good experience with social services and I've had a couple. But what this resulted in was a child protection meeting. You know, I, I got summoned to a child protection meeting and it was only then that I discovered how aggressive and how abhorrent these child protection meetings were. The parents have got no rights at all you get summons to a child protection meeting, you get accusations thrown at you and you get documents through the post or put on your table served to you to tell you to turn up to a child protection meeting. You have no way of um, taking support with you. You're allowed to have a solicitor, but the solicitor can only sit there and monitor, <clears throat> excuse me, the procedure. They're not allowed to speak for you. They're not allowed to defend you. They're only allowed to make sure that the procedure is a lawful procedure. And I can remember going into that meeting and it was huge, Brian. I mean, you had somebody from every single discipline you can imagine, including the police. So you had child protection police, you had CAFCAS, you had doctors, you had teachers, you had psychologists, you had head teachers, you had social workers, Yeah, you name it. You had, you had them around that table. I mean, when I went into the first child protection meeting, there must have been 14 people around that table and every single one of them, except for one, except for one, every single one of them pointed the finger at me. Every single one of them attacked me. You're telling me off for being muted. This is an informal chat, so I don't mind. I've now unmuted myself. So... Debbie, how how did you get how did you get them off your back? Because this this for many people is is the real issue. They 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 get involvement with social services, and they are drawn into this system, and it is amazingly difficult for them to disengage and survive as an intact family. How did you do that and keep your children? didn't listen to the advice that I was given and the advice that I was given from pretty much everybody family friends professionals was just keep it quiet do as they say 
go along with what they say, don't rock the boat, you could lose your kids. That's what people were telling me to do. And at first I was scared. I was really scared. I was terrified that somebody was gonna come through the door and take my kids. But I decided that I was gonna provide evidence that uh, my son was on the autism spectrum. Um, we got allocated uh, um, a caseworker who actually I got along with extremely well. And we agreed between us that I would smuggle. I wasn't allowed to take my son out of county. I wasn't allowed, everything that I did had to be monitored. He was registered on the child protection register and therefore I was under scrutiny. My daughter was removed at the time because she was seen to have been um, making the situation worse. So she went to my, to my mother's, luckily she wasn't taken into care. That would never have happened. She went to my mother's. And um, my son was registered on the child protection register uh, because they wouldn't believe me when I said that he was on the autism spectrum. They absolutely refused to believe me. So I smuggled my son to a private consultant um, child psychiatrist in the dead of night um, in the back of the car with blankets over him. I smuggled him out of county to Bristol from North Devon. And I met the consultant um, who did a three hour assessment and diagnosed my son on the autism spectrum and put it in writing. So when um, I saw the caseworker the next time I produced the letter from the consultant and he wasn't surprised at all. But what he said was, even though you've gone to these lengths, this is a private consultation with a private consultant. And I'm not sure that social services child protection will accept a private diagnosis. So we were on tenterhooks because we didn't know if they would accept it. However, on my occasion, luckily they did. And my son was immediately deregistered from the child protection register. However, it didn't stop there because I wasn't gonna let them get away with it. So I decided that I wanted to take action against child protection and against social services, and that I wasn't gonna let this go because the child protection officer at the time, um, who I still remember the name of and I can still see his face, um, the child protection officer at the time had told me I was a bad mother, had told me I was cruel, had made all sorts of assertions about my character and I was determined that I was not gonna allow this to carry on. So it took me seven years to sue the local authority for clinical negligence. And it was the first case of its kind and we won the case. Um, and I ended up in a meeting with my solicitor and the child protection officer that was responsible for making the comments and the social worker. And they were made to apologize to me and they were made to apologize to my son as well for failing him. And my son received substantial damages for clinical negligence. Um, and that's where I thought, right, you know, when it came to child protection, I got very involved then with autism. But I thought the only thing to do to counter the professionals whenever they come up with a, a challenge is to, I just went back to university. I thought I'm gonna have to do a degree in autism because I'm gonna to have to become a professional in my own right for people to take me seriously. So that's what I did. 
And, and Debbie, this this path ultimately led you to becoming an advisor to the government on matters to do with autism. Yes, yes, it, it did. I, I qualified um, at Birmingham University and um, then I was um, a government advisor, it, albeit voluntary. Um, I, it wasn't a paid civil service job. I was a government advisor on the National Autism Programme Board uh, between 2010 and 2015, and that was serving on the board uh, under the Secretary of State. Um, for the majority of my time, it was Norman Lamb. It was during the coalition, and it was also when we had a director of social, uh, a minister for social services, social care, until uh, Theresa May got rid of the minister <clears throat> for social care, <clears throat> excuse me, and just lumped it into the Minister of Health, into one Minister of Health. So I was on the board because many people don't realise that there isn't a blind act in the UK. There isn't a deaf act. There isn't a cerebral palsy act. But there is an Autism Act. There's legal parliamentary legislation, the Autism Act 2009. And my job was to help oversee and write the strategy think autism the statutory guidance that all local authorities had to follow um, and i was on the board for five years but interestingly during that five years i ended up with child protection on my doorstep yet again brian i'm watching i'm watching the clock debbie because i'm thinking to myself my goodness we could we could go down this this alley, and I know you've got a lot more to say on this, and I, I I know from our personal conversations how incredible and how horrible the uh, interaction with social services has been for you for a family. But I think I'm going to say on, on this occasion, let's just move on a little bit from there. So I, I don't know the answer to this, so you're going to have to tell me. So when you finally put all this to bed what were you doing before you met a man called Ian Crane I was fighting the water company right and this is this is to do with um, an ongoing horror story for you which is the flooding of your house and your your continued battle with southwest water tell us a little bit but just keep it to a few minutes, Debbie, because I want to move on to how you got involved with Ian Crane and how you got involved with the UK column and where that's taken your understanding of what is happening in UK, what's happening to people worldwide. But a few minutes on your battle with, with Southwest Water. Okay, so my battle with Southwest Water is now an ongoing 20-year battle, which one of my very dear friends very kindly reminded me was actually a third of my life. So for a third of my life, I've been fighting Southwest Water. I've endured 101 sewer floods and counting. I have a open, raw sewer built outside my home, and nobody wants to take responsibility for the fact that my house is nothing more than a blighted slum. Be, to be quite frank, um, you know, most of the services in our house don't work. It's full of mould. And we've had uh, I've had conversations with the CEO of both Cornwall Council and 
Southwest Water, who know the situation, but nobody wants to take responsibility and I won't let them off the hook. I refuse to let them off the hook. My house is valueless. It can't be sold. It will continue to flood. There's no cure for it and nobody wants to take responsibility. So that's been my campaign for the last 20 years. And um, let's put it this way, Brian, Southwest Water, <clears throat> it's taken them so far. I put in a SAR, I mean, it's a very long ongoing story, but um, we put in a SAR, a subject act test request for all the documentation with my name on it over three months ago. And they're still trying to compile it because of the volume. Uh, they know me so well they've red flagged me as obviously a troublemaker um but i've challenged them and challenged them i won't let them off the hook i continue to challenge them because i'm not the only person that this is happening to many people that are getting flooded today don't live anywhere near a river they don't live near the sea and yet their properties are flooding with what they think is rainwater or flood water but actually it's not it's over it's it's drains that are surcharging and it's sewage. And I see more and more and more of it happening all over the country. So while we're talking about the rivers are polluted and we talk about organizations like Surfers Against Sewage, what we've got to remember is there is no legislation currently in the United Kingdom that protects homeowners if a water company floods them with sewage. There is no legislation. I've and Widdicombe has gone very deeply into it. There seems to be a lacuna in the law where no one wants to take responsibility. If sewage is poured into a river, then it's the job of the Environment Agency, AKA the old rivers authority to enforce. But if sewage pours into someone's house, the water company will blight your house. And worse still, they won't tell you. They'll put it on the dirty house register that's called the DG5 register. You won't be told until you come to sell your house. And then when you come to sell it and a search is done on it, you realize that actually who's gonna want a house that sewer floods? Southwest Water think that it's okay if they put a sewer alarm on my home, but homes don't have sewer alarms. They have burglar alarms. If you were to see, if you were to go to buy a house with a sewer alarm, Brian, would you buy it? Well, the answer to that has got to be no. And um this is an amazing story of itself. And I, I hope that you will tell this story, Debbie, with me or whoever you, you feel comfortable with. But it's it's absolutely extraordinary um, because where does it come to? It comes to the fact that this nation, Great Britain, the UK, that stands on the world stage preaching to countries, third world countries that can't feed themselves, haven't got proper infrastructure, here we are in UK in 2023. I had the quip at the beginning of this recording that we had a heavy downpour, but what will happen next next year is we'll have drought and a house, hosepipe ban. Uh, this is because we have not updated the reservoir infrastructure so that in this very wet and green land, we're not conserving water in a, in a sensible and practical way we're not building new reservoirs we're not maintaining old ones we're shutting some reservoirs down and therefore we don't have water so that is one crass neglect of infrastructure but the other one is that we have not spent money on our water infrastructure not the supply of fresh water to houses nor dealing with 
grey water and and sewage. It simply hasn't happened. And in Cornwall, and correct me if I'm not right on this, but I will say that in Cornwall, we have an interesting situation where there's an ongoing battle because Southwest Water and the local authorities don't know who is responsible for which particular segments of the existing um, sewage infrastructure. And so when there's a problem, they just spend weeks or months or years pointing fingers at each other saying, well, actually, it's your responsibility, Southwest Water. And Southwest Water points back to the local authority and says, no, 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 this is your infrastructure. Or occasionally they agree and say, well, we don't actually know who owns the sewage water structure, uh, water infrastructure. What a what a position for a leading world country in 2023. And the result when when we get heavy rain is houses are, are filled with sewage like your own. It's incredible. Well, I can tell you that um, I mapped uh, myself and a friend. We mapped every asset in this whole ward of our constituency, all of it. We mapped British gas, we mapped uh, clean water, sewerage, uh, electricity, British telecom, you name it. As uh, we even we even mapped the adits, the rivers, the brooks. We we a uh, Southwest Water still and Cornwall Council still use our maps as a guideline now for where their assets are. And I think what people need to remember is that the water companies are not statutory consultees for planning. So for me, if people can picture Boss Castle, a little tiny village down the bottom of a very steep hill in North Cornwall, a little tiny fishing village, up the hill has been built loads of new housing estates and that's what's happened essentially to me is I live in an, a little miner's cottage a little stone miner's cottage right at the bottom of the hill and the hill above me used to be fields with cows but now I've got five housing estates now none of those housing estates were the, the water company was never consulted with regards to are these housing estates going to um, overwhelm your already failing infrastructure. They were never consulted. So the water companies are happy to take the money from the developers and to connect people, to connect a new estate to old infrastructure, but at our cost, because it's us that get flooded. So the number of developments, and, and to be fair, actually, on one occasion to Cornwall, uh, Cornwall actually turned down the developing uh, the, the plans they turned them down but they were overturned at Westminster I think it was uh, our friend Eric Pickles that decided that he knew better than the locals so he let the plans go ahead so now we've ended up with a situation where we've got sewerage infrastructure that's probably been designed for 200 houses that's now having to accommodate 2,000 yeah, and this is the nub of the problem, isn't it? That we, we've had a massive expansion to the urban infrastructure with minimal, minimal investment into um, sewage and water infrastructure. And now, now things are coming home to roost because these problems are appearing. But of course, what you say is true, is that when the homeowner says these things are wrong, 
um, you as one individual homeowner are fighting a monster, which is the multi-million pound um, Southwest Water, which can bring all of its big legal team in to say, well, no, it's not our problem. It's no, an incredible... It's, it's worse than that. It's worse than that, you know, Brian, because we're doing the job of the water company and the council because I've had to train as a flood warden. I have to close the road. My road is like a river. You could literally row a boat and that's only in three minutes. So we are, we are the ones that are out there that are in the middle of the road. We've provided videos, photos. I've been called a liar. I've been called an exaggerator. I've been called every single name under the sun by Southwest Water. I've seen documents that have demonized me because I challenge them and I won't let them off the hook. So yes, they've got this huge bank of lawyers at Pennon, their parent company, and they use that power. They use it on their own customers. And yet you've only got to look at any reports off what reports, off what do what, by the way, pretty much nothing because there is no regulation from off what, they're a financial regulator only. But you look at the reports and you can see the damage that these water companies are doing to, to people all around the country. And none of them, none of them are taking accountability for it. And the local authorities point the finger to the water companies. The water companies point the finger to the local authorities. I've got the ownership deeds of all the assets around me. And now Southwest Water are telling me, oh, we don't think it belongs to us. Even though they've worked on an asset for 10 years, they're saying we did it as a gesture of goodwill. No, I don't think so, Southwater. No one works on assets that don't belong to them. It's simply ridiculous. But all the time they've allowed my community to live like this, frightened every single time it rains. We can't go on holiday. We can't go away. We can't. Every single birthday pretty much is ruined. You don't know what is going to happen next. If there's a, a we get flood warnings two, three times a week. And you don't know if that flood warning is going to result in six inches of water in your home, whether you're going to be out of your house for nine months. You can't invite people round. You can't go anywhere. Your whole life is on hold. People don't understand with floods. I feel so sorry for all the people that were flooded three months ago. And I saw a report on the news that said, you know, um, they're hoping to be in their homes for Christmas. And I thought, no. You won't be in your homes for Christmas because if your house is flooded, it's at least six to nine months before your home is dry enough to even start to repair. And then you've got the fight with the insurance company. You know, it just goes from one drama to another. The ongoing effects and repercussions and psychological damage are huge. But I don't know, maybe I've got a strong spirit and I just keep on fighting. Well, at the end of the day, you're a gutsy woman. Debbie, this this is the key thing. So I, I I would suspect there's quite a few people listening in, people who've seen you talking on UK Column, listen to what you have to talk about. Now they're beginning to understand the things that have happened that have made you into the woman that you are. And clearly you've never been a woman who's going to say, well, this is wrong. Oh, well. That's the way it is. You, you've you been one of the people who've always stood up to challenge it. So these, these are things which have formed you, made you the person that you are. They're ongoing battles, but you've been able to do even more on top of that 
and I'm going to push you because we got to we got to get there. Ian Crane, somehow you got in touch with Ian Crane, or Ian Crane got in touch with you. Now, if people don't know who Ian Crane is, he was a lovely man who also realised that things were very wrong in the UK and the world in general. And he stood up to be counted by setting up talks, which started very small and then ultimately got to the stage where he could take take over a, a very nice hotel for the weekend and fill that hotel with people who wanted to hear speakers talking about what was wrong, what was causing problems in UK and worldwide. And the wonderful thing for me is that when you went to one of those events, people were listening to very serious subjects very often, very serious subjects, some of them quite dark in the talks. And yet when the people socialised at coffee time or maybe in the evening in the bar, you could just hear people laughing and talking and interacting with, with each other. Sadly, Ian isn't with us anymore. But um, Debbie, I never did know. How how did you get in touch with Ian Crane? Do you know what? It was one of those things where it just happened. And my great friend, and I will, I will name her because it was really down to her, uh, Mel Sheridan, um, who's also had huge problems with Southwest Water. She phoned Ian Crane one morning and um, spoke to him. And she said to me, you should phone him. And his number was online. It was very easy to get in contact with him. And I thought it can't be that easy, surely. Um, And I picked up the phone and I dialed the number and Ian picked up. And I was really surprised that it was him on the end of the phone. And I just explained who I was. And I said, I'm having an absolute nightmare with the water companies. They're corrupt to, to their bootstrings. They're cruel. They don't care about their customers. They've got huge huge amount of money in their pot they're only worried about their shareholders I've got the evidence I've done loads of work into them and I want to expose them and he listened to me and said well I tell you what Debbie I've got an AV conference coming up in a couple of months how about you put together a presentation send it to me and we'll see if we can get you included on the conference and I was like wow Wow. And I I literally put the phone down and I got an email from him within about 10 minutes to say, uh, this is the address. This is the email address to send a presentation to. Please, please send it across as soon as you can. So I put together some slides and um, he liked what he saw and he agreed that the water companies needed to be have a a spotlight shone on them. Um, And he gave me the opportunity to talk at AV and that of course is where I met you Brian and that's where it it all started because when I presented at AV of course I got the opportunity to listen to all the all of the other speakers and that was really I was waking up but that was one of the trigger moments that opened my eyes even more to what was going on. Thank you for that. And that was fun times because I I remember Ian giving me a call and saying that he'd been speaking to this lady called Debbie Evans, who knew a huge amount about water and 
um, the water companies and also things happening internationally to do with water. Um, I'm going to say what he said. <laughs> what did he say to me? He said, well, this lady knows a huge amount, Brian, but I think she could do with a little bit of help to prepare her slides and and also have a little bit of the confidence to join in with AV, which is alternative view. If people want to know what that is, we'll make sure there's a link through to alternative view in the, the notes for this audio. You mentored me, Brian, you mentored me right all the way through. And that's really how, how we got to know each other, because you took me under your wing and, and gave me a few hints and tips and, and helped me help me with my presentation and stuff. Well, that, that that's true, Debbie. But the other thing that was happening was that every time we had a discussion, you were talking about other things. And I'm thinking, blimey, this, this lady knows all sorts of things. And so our discussions got more and more wide ranging. You did the alternative view and you did really well and people paid attention to what you had to say. Um, but we were able to carry on that conversation. And then we got the opportunity to say to you, well, do you want to come and talk on a few things with UK Column? And I'm going to say what an adventure that's been, because no, no sooner had you come on than life led, I, correct me if I've got this wrong, but life led you, led us back in the direction really of medical matters. And then we had the incredible events of COVID and lockdown. And this gave you an opportunity to really get back into your um, your earlier professional mould as, as a nursing sister. And you realised that things just weren't right with what they were saying about COVID and lockdown. What, no. what, was, what was the key trigger? Did, did you have a day when you were listening to something on the radio or watching TV or whatever it was, and you said, this is nonsense. What what engaged you? What was the first thing that made you really think that what they were saying about COVID was wrong? My first warning flag, I think, was the tests, the PCR tests, the test and trace, because as I'd done ENT, I'd specialised in ear, nose and throat. So I knew that nasopharyngeal swabs were pretty dangerous. And um, as an ENT nurse, I would prefer a consultant to do them. It's a very delicate part of the body. And if you shove a, a swab, a cotton wool bud up your nose in, in, the wrong, in the wrong way, you could do yourself some serious damage, which is why we say to children and we watch children, we say, don't put anything up your nose. So that was my first warning flag. But my son, actually, I have to, to, to acknowledge David here because he came downstairs one, one day and he said, mum, he said, there's 98 or 99.7% of people are getting better. Why is everybody worried? And it was like a, a light bulb moment for me. It was quite early on and he'd been doing, he's got, I think he's got my, my sort of research genes and he'd been doing a load of research and that was the light bulb moment. So that the PCR tests, because I knew that they were either retrieving something from inside the nose so they were either swabbing for dna or they were inserting something high up in the nose that you wouldn't be able to get out so i was very suspicious of that the other thing that really triggered me was that a pandemic 
of any any sort would normally burn itself out in three to four years. So why anybody was even considering a vaccine, which would normally take five to 10 years to develop, was also a red flag. But uh, those were the three things that really got me suspicious that something wasn't right. And that led on to you interacting coming into contact with other people who were doing amazing research and saying some pretty amazing things and one name that comes to me instantly at this point is a lady called Anne-Marie Yim. I knew you were going to say Dr Anne-Marie Yim what an absolute trooper she is and yeah you're absolutely right you know I jumped on telegram one evening and uh, you told me about these lines that you could talk to loads of people on a like a, a telegram chat and there was a, a chat talking about um covid the vaccines the rollout with dr Anne marie yim and i happened to catch this conversation on telegram and as a result i messaged her and from that message came great knowledge because as many of our regular audience will know we did many interviews with dr yim and her other experts professor perron as well uh, from France. So we had a very much international flavor on what was going on in Europe with COVID. And one thing led to another. And I think where I was fortunate was that because I'm a nurse, I can translate some of that lingo and jargon that people were hearing and perhaps not understanding. So I could translate it and make it more simple for people to understand. So, yes, Dr. Anne-Marie Yim, Professor Perron, uh, Harvey Seligman, all of those interviews can be found still on the UK column. And I mean, how right were they? You know, I remember Dr. Seligman saying right at the beginning, Brian, um, talking about uh, shedding, for example, and he was studying the Pfizer data in Israel. This was right from the get go. Um, so we were well ahead of the curve. And, you know, taking yourself back to when you interviewed um, Nicola and Tony, we were well ahead of the curve. Then we were seeing serious adverse reactions from very early on, even before other people were seeing them. And looking at the NHS long term plan, as I did in great depth and seeing what was coming in the future and what is happening now is something that's fundamentally completely different from the NHS that I trained in. So everything, everything that I am familiar with, everything that rings home with me, that I feel safe with, that's not happening in the NHS at the moment. And I'm horrified because for nurses of my generation, and I can imagine there'll be quite a few listening today, and they'll be saying exactly the same. It was not like this in my day and the, the the change has been phenomenal i mean it's it's completely different to, to how it was then and and what you're talking about there is is the whole of the medical system but in particular the nhs yeah the nhs is is it's unrecognizable it's completely unrecognizable not only do you not know who you're seeing when you go in you don't know what you're being told you don't know if you're going to get seen um when I trained, the patient was always the centre of our radar. It was patient-centred care. And today, the NHS 
is not functioning as a health service at all. It's not providing a service to people. What it's actually doing is making people sick, in my opinion. You know, it's making people sicker than they should be. And it's not offering them the correct help and treatment that they're needing quickly enough. So we're testing, we're spending all of this money in this country at the moment on testing everybody for cancer, testing them for disease, testing them for viruses. And then what do we do with them? When we do discover that there is a problem, we put them at the end of a 7.8 million waiting list. So we're, we're happy to test healthy people, but we're not happy to treat those ones that need help. And in particular, you know, those that are suffering with serious adverse reactions, we were right ahead of the curve from the get-go with that because we could see that people with serious adverse reactions were, were not being acknowledged by doctors. They weren't being seen by professionals. They weren't being able to access the tests, the treatment that they needed, and were often having to pay huge amount using their savings. Some of them are having to remortgage or sell their homes in order to get private medical treatment because they couldn't access NHS treatment. So, you know, for me particularly, it was interesting speaking to Vanessa Beely when she was telling me that a friend of hers needed medical treatment in Syria and was seen, treated and, and left uh, with whatever they needed within 25 minutes. This all took place in 25 minutes. Here, you know, if you're admitted via an ambulance, you could be stuck on a trolley for 12, 24, 48 hours. So what kind of health service is that? It's not the one I trained in. In fact, now in third world countries, you seem to be able to access better healthcare than you do here in the UK as a developed, as what we call a developed country. Debbie, let, let's jump in the deep end because your and our personal experience of what happened during the COVID so-called pandemic and lockdown was an amazing thing. You were researching and you discovered a lot of things. And then subsequently, you've also started to see a lot of things happening. Part of that is what is happening in the medical world, but a lot of it is broader than just the medical world. We're in the we're in the last few minutes, really, but you've come a huge way. You're a fighter. What is it? What is it you think you're fighting at the moment? I believe we're fighting not just a, a physical war that we see around us, an information war, um, but we're fighting a spiritual war. What I see is satanic what i see is demonic i cannot I, I mean the people that are doing this the people in control of this narrative to me my personal opinion is they don't have souls they don't have consciences um and and i believe that i, I very much believe that walking around us there are angels in human form and i'm very fortunate that i've met so many especially since working with the column but there are also demons in human form too people that are anti-humans anti-humanists people that don't don't want to care for other human beings so i believe that this is this is evil this is dark this is satanic and i think it's biblical i think we're living in biblical times 
Well, I wouldn't disagree with that that at all, and that won't surprise you, I don't think. But it's clear that something very nasty is operating both in the UK and worldwide. There seems to be money, plenty of money for wars and munitions and weapons. We can support the war in Ukraine. We can support the horrific scenes of the bombing in Gaza. Um, but we can't look after elderly people. We've also seen many elderly people die as a result of the um, of the lockdown, where they were locked into so-called care facilities and denied access with their relatives and young children, all the things that might be expected to keep a, an older or an elderly person sprightly and interested in life. Um, we've got the demise of the NHS, where we can't get basic medical treatment for people. We've got the sexualization of our children in schools, young children in schools. We've got the utter breakdown of politics. Um, there's something really unpleasant at, at work in, in UK. And when we're getting into it, and you've been doing some, some incredible research on, on this over the last few months, is that we're seeing this network of global bodies that seem to be able to pull the strings to get nation states to jump to their tune. Can you tell yeah. us a bit more about the network that you're seeing? Oh, the network's absolutely huge. I mean, you know, I think most people that are listening to this now will immediately recognise the WHO, the World Health Organization, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the uh, the um, the banks. I mean, they're all in it up to their neck. This is for control, and this is to frighten us. You know, the for the last four years, the population of the world. I don't know anybody that hasn't been affected at some in some way, shape, or form by what we've seen in the last four years, wherever you are in the world. People have had information thrown at them, cascades of information, infodemics, and, and now they're frightened. So many people are frightened. And I think the key to all of this is these globalists want us to be frightened. They want to cause confusion, chaos, disruption. And we must not allow that. We must not allow that. We see them. I mean, I, I heard Ben Rubin on the news and, and I've heard other people. Uh, Professor Chris Flowers was saying in my recent interview with him um, when he was he was he was directing a message actually to Professor Jonathan Van Tam. And the message is the same. We see you. You know, are they really that stupid? that they don't think that we see what's going on with these global organizations. It's just one big revolving door because the conflicts of interests are absolutely immense. I mean, you know, Bill Gates, he's not a country, but he's the second biggest donor for the World Health Organization. Uh, he's got the ex-chair of the MHRA in his Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's got his fingers pretty much in every pie and especially in the United Kingdom's um, pie, you know, we've got Bill Gates infiltrating everywhere and it's network within network, but it's always the same names that keep coming up and the same organizations. And the reason that they've made it a spider's web is to try to confuse us, is to try and um, make it difficult for us to be able to join the dots. 
And we've always said that whatever dots we join on the column, we always encourage other people to take the information that we're giving them and check it out for themselves. Join your own dots, find your own truth. But clearly what I can see is this massive web, internet web, a web of deception, a spider's web of organizations within organizations within organizations so many organizations and actually government departments springing up all over the place that nobody's ever heard of that you can't possibly track everything all of the time because it's so complicated but that's the name of the game isn't it make it as difficult as you can but it remains to be said that we see you we know what you're doing and we will stand up, we will rise up against it. And I don't think things are gonna get easier anytime soon. However, I think that the majority of certainly our audience at the UK Column, we're prepared. We know what is coming up so we can be prepared. And I think we have to be prepared because someone's gonna have to be there for people that aren't prepared. There are going to be some people that are really scared moving forward. I don't think 2024 is going to be a very easy year. And some people are going to be very scared, very fearful and very surprised. And it's going to be people like us and outlets like us that can maybe just try and reassure people to you're OK. Things are OK. You'll be OK as long as you're prepared. Be prepared for everything. Um, and now's the time to do it. And I always say at the end of my blog, Brian, have you got a plan? because perhaps now is the time to start thinking about one. Brilliant. Thank, thank you very much for that, Debbie. Now, our, our interview, our discussion is going to go out over the Christmas holiday period. So I have two questions for you. One is people are there at home um, Christmas. I'm not sure which day this particular interview will go out, but I'm just going to say the Christmas holiday period. So the first thing I'm going to ask you is, what should people be doing and saying to their families? They're together with them this Christmas. What would you suggest people should be doing as families and friends who are together at the Christmas holiday period? Well, you know, my kids have, have instructed me that um, on Christmas Day, I'm not to say anything controversial and I'm to keep Christmas Day because, I mean, you know, for, for many of us, Christmas can be quite stressful. You've got people coming from all over the place. You On a time, it all has the turkey done and dishing everything up on time. And it can be quite busy. Um, so my kids have said to me, Mum, can we just make Christmas Day a day where we enjoy each other and we respect each other's opinions and we don't say anything and we just enjoy being a family for the day and we forget about all of this just for one day. And so I've promised that I won't talk about anything that could be considered controversial or upsetting to anybody on Christmas day. That doesn't mean to say though, on Boxing Day, I can't. And I think what I'm finding now is that more people than not are asking questions. And very often something will come up in a conversation that you don't need to bring anything up. And you just listen to what they're saying and then gently, gently, really gently talking about what actually is happening and asking questions. You know, there's nothing quite as 
it diffuses everything if you ask somebody a question if you say what do you think about what's going on at the moment or do you think they're going to get rid of cash and get that other person's opinion and then you've got the start the the icebreaker for a conversation what I've learned is because I'm quite gobby is that I've got to learn to with my family shut up a little bit because they get a bit tired of me um, going on and on and on. So I think I've learned to hold my tongue at certain points and learn, discern who's the right person to tell when's the right per when when's the right time. But certainly have those conversations. And if nothing else, you know, refer people to the front page of the Times this week because if Oliver Dowden's saying get prepared and buy your candles, that's always a conversation breaker. Are you going to buy your candles? Have you bought torches? Well, the Deputy Prime Minister says we should. What do you think that's all about? You know, try to make the conversation as as friendly and as gentle as possible and don't make it hostile because we're living in we're living in hostile times we don't need to to make them worse brilliant now the last question is what do you say as a gutsy woman to other women out there to get them to stand up and fight what do you say i say to every single woman out there you know you know deep down that your children's future is in jeopardy, your grandchildren's future is in jeopardy, your cousin, your sister, we've all got children in our family, we owe it, we owe it to the next generations coming along, we have to stand up to tell the truth, we have to say no, women, stand with me and just say no, be brave, you know, we are, we are a strong race. The hu human race is strong. We need other humans as well. Humans need humans. So join me in a campaign to stand up, just say no, be brave, stand firm, and don't be scared. Brilliant. Let's end there. We're going to say thank you very, very much to all the UK column listeners who've joined us today uh, it's been fascinating to hear you talking about yourself debbie and uh, the amazing life that you've had and you've come through all those trials and tribulations and here you are at the end of 2023 still fighting and we're delighted to have you as part of the uk column team so thank you very much Brian, I'm delighted to be part of the team. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and the platform to tell my story. And hopefully, if you're out there and you're listening, you'll stand up, say no, and be brave. Great. And to the audience, enjoy your Christmas break. Be nice to yourself. Be kind to your family and other people. And make a little bit of time to say some prayers, because that's a very important thing to do. We'll leave it there. Bye-bye.